thankful for the music that we get to share together when we gather in worship in all the ways it expresses itself to us. Last week we uh, sang a hymn that uh, every pilgrimage I've led with church members around the world, whether it be in the Holy Land or England or Scotland, wherever we've gone, we would start every morning singing that hymn. So when we sing it, and we sang it last week, it, it transports you, right? It, it, it's, it's not only a hymn of praise to God, but it moves you to the vision of all of those places you've been and all that you've seen. The first hymn we sang this morning, Lift High the Cross, that was my ordination hymn in 1993. So these songs are, are the ways in which we teach ourselves about our faith. It's the way in which we kind of hold ourselves. So they're not entertainment. They're designed to be proclamations of our heart and our soul, and they teach us something, especially in the Methodist tradition. All the hymns we sing that were written by Charles Wesley, for example, one of the early founders of the Methodist movement, contain all of our theology, contain all of our doctrine, they contain all of the teaching that we hold on to as followers of Jesus, such a, a rich part of our tradition. I want to start today by talking about another part of our tradition, and it has to do with a, a diagram that I used in the class I taught at Seattle Pacific this last quarter. So I was teaching a class for mainly freshmen called the Christian faith, and it's designed to be somewhat of an introduction to Christianity. And during a part of our class for about two weeks, we centered ourselves on this diagram you can see up here on the screen. And really how this diagram works is it talks about the way in which um, uh, Methodists are called to live their life of faith. And it looks a little complicated, but let me explain it very simply. Uh, on the top, you'll see where it says works of mercy. Works of mercy are the works that are directed toward other people. And then at the bottom, you'll see works of piety. Those are works directed toward God. Works directed toward others, works directed toward God. Now, some of those works are private and some are public. In other words, some are personal, some are public. For example, a private or personal act that involves our piety is our devotional life. You'll see it says acts of devotion. That's how we spend time in prayer, Bible study, reflecting on how the Spirit of God is speaking to us. Those are acts of devotion. They happen personally, and they're works of piety. They're directed to God. All of us in the sanctuary, at least this day, and everyone worshiping online is engaged in the public work of piety, which is the act of worship. It's when we gather together as a community in public and we proclaim our faith. Now, if you look at the top half, those works of mercy that are directed towards other people, some of them take place publicly. Those are acts of justice very much a part of our Methodist tradition for well over a hundred years. The work of free Methodists in the Underground Railroad, the work of the free Methodists to champion the ordination of women, all of those things are acts of justice. Those are public things that we did as God's people and continue to do. And then there are the personal works of mercy, those things we do by ourselves, maybe when no one's watching and no one's paying attention. Those are the acts of compassion the acts of compassion. And what I wanted my students to understand is that the Christian life is finding balance between all four of these things, finding a way to hold the acts of compassion, the acts of justice, the acts of devotion, and the acts of worship all together. And that's what makes us holistically followers of Jesus Christ. Today, I want to talk with you about one part of that diagram, acts of compassion, acts of compassion. 
This parable that you heard read a moment ago by Nolan is a, a well-known parable. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats, as it's called. Jesus tells this at the very end of what's considered in Matthew's gospel to be called his Olivet Discourse, this long, long, long speech by Jesus that has been kind of put together in three different chapters of Matthew as that gospel moves toward its close. And this is the final parable that you find there. A parable, remember, is a contextual teaching with a spiritual application. And so Jesus wants his followers and those listening to him to hear carefully about the sheep and the goats. And it sounds a bit cataclysmic. It's like the, Jesus says, at the end of time, all the nations of the world are going to be gathered together and they're going to be separated just like, you got the word like in there? All right, that's a simile, not a metaphor. And now is going to separate them into two different groups, sheep and goats. In other words, those who have done well what Jesus is about to say and those who have not done well what Jesus is about to say. And so this morning I want to talk with you about the primary way we understand this parable. And then secondly, I want to talk with you about, we'll call it the minority report. It's another way to interpret this parable that not everybody embraces. And then we're going to talk finally about a third piece. And that third part we're going to talk about is what either interpretation of this parable tell us about God and about who God is and what God is doing. So first, let's turn to the traditional way we understand this parable. We might describe it as compassionate Christians compassionate Christians. So there's some things that stand out in this parable right away. First, there's judgment. Second, the judgment is Jesus's alone. Jesus makes it clear in the parable that he's the one who's going to be executing this form of judgment. And third, and this is the most disturbing part, the judgment is based on how well people served Jesus without knowing it was Jesus. How well they served Jesus without knowing it was Jesus. That disturbs me, doesn't it, you? And that's part of the way in which this teaching's been embraced in its traditional interpretation, that there's this hidden Jesus out there all around us, and you never know at what moment you might be serving that hidden Jesus. And so he's hiding out like whack-a-mole. He's hiding out. We don't know if that's him or if it's not him. And so let's dive into what Jesus wants us to hear. Jesus tells us that there's a time in which he was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, and imprisoned. And either people took care of him or they did not take care of him, one or the other. Either they gave him something to eat, they gave him something to drink, they clothed him, they welcomed him, then visited him, or they didn't. That's how the parable works. So the imperative for all of us as compassionate Christians is to make sure that whenever there's an opportunity to engage with somebody that might be hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, sick, or in prison, that we respond to that, is that which is happening right in front of us. That's how we've held this parable and how we understand it. And it's not a stretch, to be honest. This example Jesus gives is broadly true of what Jesus told his disciples to do all throughout their time spent with Jesus in his earthly ministry. The problem that we have when we read the parable this way is how do we square this reading of the parable, that final judgment 
is based on your works of compassion with our deeply held teaching that we are saved by faith through grace. How do you get these two to work together? It's not easy. It actually gives me a cramp right over here. (laughs) Sometimes we deal with it by simply saying that our works of grace and compassion toward others are a manifestation of the faith we have. It's almost like we picked up the book of James and we're reading it at the same time we're reading this parable. We're trying to hold these things together. Remember what Jesus told his disciples earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. Jesus sent his disciples out to go on a preaching and healing ministry. And here are the instructions he gave them. As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. So if we were to read the parable this way, our compassionate acts toward other people are to manifest the living gospel of Jesus. We judge no one. What's it say? Freely you have received. What's the imperative? Freely give. Seems to make some sense. This is the common way in which we teach this parable. We talk about it. We talk about it in terms of its moral and ethical imperative to feed hungry people, to quench the thirst of thirsty people, to put clothing on people who are naked, to welcome those who are strangers, and to visit those who are sick or imprisoned. Makes sense, right? So some questions we might wonder about are these. How is your life of faith with Jesus made real in compassionate acts toward others. Acts that you yourself do. Not that you pay someone else to do, but the acts you yourself do. And how would your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, or your friends, how would they describe your compassionate acts? Because, friends, they're watching They're all watching. They're all watching the Jesus follower to see whether or not the Jesus follower is going to embody the moral and ethic that Jesus has told us. Feed the hungry, quench the thirst of those who are thirsty, give clothing to those who are naked, welcome the stranger, visit people who are sick or in prison. Well, I mentioned there's a minority report. Do you want to hear it? The minority report, another way to interpret this fine parable. And it's not about compassionate Christians, it's actually about compassionate people. So the scope broadens just a little bit. So I'm not telling you today which of these two interpretations I agree with. I'm going to keep that from you. (laughs) Because what I want us to do is I want us to wrestle with the fact that there's different ways to read this parable. And that this teaching may contain, may contain different dimensions that tease something out of us just a little bit. So let's give it a try. Jesus takes pains to tell his disciples in his ministry that there are going to be places where they may or they may not be received well. 
I want to go back to Matthew chapter 10, the passage we read a moment ago. Back in Matthew 10, Jesus tells his followers that they're to go on this little mission trip that he sent them on to preach and heal people with no resources. Listen to what he says. This is Matthew chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, nor bag for your journey, or even two tunics or sandals or a staff. The worker is deserving of his support. So basically what Jesus has instructed you to do is to take your purse off your shoulder and leave it in that pew, take your wallet out and leave it in that pew, go down to SeaTac, get on a plane and fly somewhere and get off and do exactly what Jesus has told you to do. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? There's been times when I've had to fly somewhere for a meeting just for a day, and many of you have had this experience, where you don't take a suitcase on the plane, you just get on the plane with like your bag, your holding with you, there's this disquieting feeling when you get on the plane and that's all you have with you and you're like, what if, what if something goes wrong? I, I, I feel like I've forgotten something. It's disturbing to go somewhere and not feel like you're totally prepared for what's going to happen. And that's exactly what Jesus tells them to do. I'm sending you out unprepared. The reason is, is that wherever they go, wherever those disciples might land or find themselves, they have a job. The first thing that they're supposed to do when they arrive in a town or a village. Let's listen to what Jesus tells them in Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 and 42. The one who receives you receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person in the name of a righteous person person shall receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives to one of these little ones just a cup of cold water to drink in the name of a disciple, truly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. In Matthew chapter 10, we hear this passage of scripture. We also hear Jesus telling the disciples that when you go to a town or a village and they welcome you, you should stay there. You should stay there. But if you go to a town or a village and they don't welcome you, what does Jesus tell them to do? Wipe the dust off your feet and leave. And then Jesus says something even worse after that. He said it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than that town or village. Yikes! The sermon is on Matthew 25, but I don't think we can hear it completely without Matthew chapter 10. What did Jesus say? The one who receives you, receives who? <laughs> receives me. And the one who receives me, receives the one who sent me. Oh, this looks like whack-a-mole Jesus. The hiding Jesus. That people welcome you as disciples, but they don't know that it's not you, it's Jesus who they welcome. Now this kind of shifts and begins to move how we read the parable just a little bit. So back to Matthew 25. Is there some sense in this parable that those who are being judged are those who have either welcomed Jesus or not? Because the ending of the parable, when the people say, well, Jesus, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or sick or whatever? 
And Jesus says, well, and as much as you didn't do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. The only time Jesus uses those words, least of these, is one other time in Matthew's gospel. You'll never guess where. Matthew chapter 10. Whoever welcomes one of these little ones. Same word. Is it possible what Jesus is telling us here is that this isn't so much about the Christian's work of being compassionate, but it's a judgment based on how well Christians are welcomed in their compassionate work. Could this judgment be about those who welcome apostles and missionaries and those who do not? It would explain at least how they would be welcoming Jesus and not really know it. What did Jesus say? He who receives you receives me. Eh. If this interpretation even has a shred of truth to it, then that means part of our work as Christians as we engage in our apostolic and missionary work is to find and engage those in our community that would welcome us that we look for partners, we look for people, we look for opportunities and inroads to go about our compassionate work in the world. We seek out what's called the person of peace, the one who would welcome us so that we can go about our work. We have a great example of this in the life of our church. Our ministry of fostering hope does this in abundance. We seek out and work with social workers here in the city of Seattle who are not part of our church, but they welcome our compassionate work, and so they become our partners in it. Maybe this parable is about them. Maybe it's about them. So some questions to wonder about. Are there allies and partners in our missionary work? And how have we engaged with them? Now, I did tell you it was the minority report, right? Because there's a certain amount of stress that Christians like to have for whatever reason of thinking that whenever they're serving someone who's hungry, they might be serving the hidden Jesus. And they're looking for him like some kind of lottery ticket. I don't know. But I think both readings of this parable, no matter which way you want to take it, which way you want to hold it, either way or both ways, there's something we learn about God in this parable, and it's this, that there is a compassionate God at work. What we see in Matthew 25 is a God who is compassionate to those who embody compassion, regardless of how you take the parable. Those who embody compassion, they're the ones that get compassion. So at every moment of every day, we're God's people in this world. So the parable could be speaking about how God judges those who either welcomed servants of Christ or didn't. It might just be explaining how we're all going to be judged based on how well we rendered compassion to other people. This God we serve as exemplified in Jesus Christ is a God moved by compassion. You remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus arrives on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he looks out at the crowd and Jesus says, that he, it says in the gospel that Jesus looked upon the crowd with compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. God values compassion. And so if anything is certain in this parable, regardless of how you want to interpret it, 
is that the value of compassion is supremely important to God. And acting in compassion and working with compassionate people, serving in compassionate ways, are all practices consistent with God's heart. God is seeking any reason to reward compassion. That's what this parable teaches us. Any approximation of compassion, God is just hungry to affirm and reward acts of compassion. In the parable, that's who's welcomed into eternal life. And those that had no compassion, no kindness, no goodness, they had a different fate. They're sent to this, this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> In Jerusalem, that was the dump. It was called Gehenna. And it's the place where they burned all the trash. And it burned with a fire that never went out. And Jesus uses this image of the city dump that's always burning as a rich image to talk about what it is for us to not be in right relationship with God and with other human beings. Hmm. So this morning, the application of the sermon is simple. I just want you to stew in this parable for a little bit. It's disturbing, isn't it? It should be. It's the very last parable Jesus ever told. And it should shake us just a little bit. So this morning, why don't we just pause for a, a minute of silent prayer and ask God to illumine our hearts about becoming compassionate people. Thank you.